You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. John 12, verse 27. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We bow before you in full recognition that, Father, we require you to teach us. Well, Father, we pray that you would be pleased to open our, our minds, our hearts, as you open up your word. Father, instruct us in these things. Father, we pray that, Lord, it would be more than simple instruction. Father, we would find you searching our hearts and knowing our hearts, and we would find your work of aligning our hearts with your truth. In short, Father, we ask that you would make us more Christ-like, Father, uh, by way of this passage that we have just read. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. In many ways, this morning's uh, message is really just on the second part of verse 28, where we hear this voice from heaven. Uh, We can practically hear it as we read these words. Uh, Jesus has said, Father, glorify your name. And then the voice comes from heaven saying, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. I really want to use that, uh, what, what the Father says there uh, as uh, a place, if you will, to kind of camp out on. Now, in terms of context, uh, if you go back to verse 20, I've made a lot of noise about, about these uh, Greeks that have shown up at the Passover feast and uh, the significance of that. And I'll, I'll say it once more, um, as Jesus is... Uh, exercising his earthly ministry, we know that his earthly ministry was largely to the lost sheep of Israel, correct? It's largely to Israel. And as if you heard me say several times, here Jesus is now, he's in the final days of his ministry, and um, here show up these Greeks. And um, the significance of this, I don't think, can be overstressed. What is taking place here? Well, Jesus has taught us in John 6 that The only folks that are going to come to Jesus are those whom the Father has drawn him, right? No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. Uh, And here we have uh, these Greeks, these uh, non-Jewish folks, if you will, showing up, and they're desirous to see Jesus. That's what they want. That's what's on their mind. If you look in verse uh, 21, they approach Philip, and they say, we wish to see Jesus. Now, As I've said uh, before in earlier messages, it's not simply that they want to see him from a distance. Uh, They're they're here to see him. They want to sit down with him. They want to spend time with him. They want to get to know him. And uh, uh, so Philip uh, gets Philip gets Andrew, and Andrew and Philip come to Jesus, and 
they share these words with Jesus, and then Jesus says in verse 24, Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. And, you know, on the surface of it, we can think, this is an odd thing to say in the wake of some folks that want to come and see you. What has that got to do with these guys wanting to come and see you? Um, well, it has everything to do with it. And I hope to make it even clearer this morning. Uh, of course, Jesus is that, he is that uh, grain of wheat. He is that seed, if you will, uh, that will perish and go into the earth. And he is that seed that uh, will produce many, many uh, other seeds. And, and in previous messages, we've looked carefully at verse 25 and 26, which make application of that. Uh, I won't say anything about that now, but I really want to go from verse 24 to verse 27. You know, in verse 24, Jesus is saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now is my soul troubled, verse 27. You see the connection there. Now is my soul troubled. You know, as I said last week, this wasn't easy for Jesus. Um, now is my soul troubled. Well, what's it troubled about? Jesus realizes the gravity of the assignment. And like I said last week, what's happening in verse 27 is a collision. The horrifying assignment that has been given to Jesus, namely to go to the cross to die uh, uh, for the sins of all he has come to save, that horrible assignment is now colliding uh, with his love for the Father. And he comes out and says, my soul's trouble. What shall I say? And again, I, I want to reiterate that I take the position that the second question mark that's in the ESV translation ought not to be there, that what Jesus is saying is a petition. I think the King James translation makes it a petition. I don't think Jesus is asking a rhetorical question and then answering it is what I'm trying to say. I think what Jesus is doing is lifting a petition before the Lord. I think it, when he says, Father, save me from this hour, I think what he is doing is saying the same thing that he'll say in the Garden of Gethsemane, Lord, if it could be your will, take this cup from me. Take this cup from me. Um, so he says, Father, save me from this hour. But then he says, but for this purpose, I've come to this hour. And then he says, Father, glorify your name. And that, as I've said, that is the same thing as saying, Thy will be done, isn't it? Glorify your name. And then at that point in time, a voice came from heaven, and this is the third time and one of only three times where the Father will speak during Jesus' earthly ministry. He speaks once at Jesus' baptism. He speaks once when Jesus is transfigured on the mount, and he speaks once here. And what does the Father say? We should hang on to these words. He says, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And it is those words that I really want to try to open up this morning. Uh, really under three things. The uh, first thing I want to show this morning is that the Father has promised to glorify his name in Christ. In fact, he promises many centuries earlier to glorify his name in Christ. We'll, we'll look at that historical context first. And secondly, I want to look at how the Father has already glorified his name. Because what he is saying is up to this point in Jesus' ministry, he has already glorified it, hasn't he? What does the voice say? I'll read it to you again. I have glorified it. In other words, I have been glorifying it. I have already glorified it. 
So it'll be the second head that we look at. And the third, he promises to glorify it again. What exactly does that undertake? What exactly does that involve? It's right here in our, in our text. So let's start with the first. Uh, the Father has promised to glorify his name. If, you'll, if you keep your place in John and you turn back to Isaiah, uh, to Isaiah 41, if you will, Isaiah 41, you get to the Psalms, you've gone too far, turn right, you get to Isaiah 41. There's a couple of uh, things I want to develop from Isaiah, and this will help you when you're reading Isaiah to try to make sense of Isaiah. You know, there's a lot of poetry in these, pro- in these prophetic writings, and I remember years ago when I first started reading them, I, sometimes I'd be through a chapter and I wouldn't be able to remember anything that I'd read. Have you ever had that problem? You read a whole chapter and you say, okay, what was that all about? I have no idea. Um, it happens, doesn't it? But as we begin, there's, there's things that are, that, that are going on here, and the more familiar we get with them, uh, the easier it becomes to make sense of this. And there's two things that I want to show. One is the servant motif that um, Isaiah develops, and the second is this uh, Jacob Isaac uh, contrast, if you will. Now, in terms of the servant motif, you know, Isaiah, in Isaiah's writings, the Lord will use uh, the word servant to describe uh, a number of different things. And for example, uh, he, Isaiah is referred to as, a, as the Lord's servant. David is referred to as the Lord's servant. And if you look at Isaiah 41, verses 8 and 9, there you'll see that Israel is referred to as my servant. Verse 8, but you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Now, there's a couple of things going on here. One is this servant motif is being developed. But also, there's a Jacob-Israel contrast that's being made. Now, as I look around, I know there was, there was some of you who were uh, with us when we were going verse by verse through Genesis. And it's been a good while ago, but if you'll recall, uh, all the way back in Genesis, I think it was chapter 35, where Jacob wrestles with the Lord. Remember that story? He's wrestling with the Lord, and he wrestles all night with the Lord. And what does the Lord do? The Lord says, I'm going to change your name. Now you're no longer going to be called Jacob. You're going to be called Israel. You remember that? And it's, it's appropriate because does anybody remember what Jacob's name means? Yes. It's not, how would you like to... What do you think we're going to call him, Susie? I don't know. Let's call him. Uh, let's call him Deception. How about that? We'll call him Deceiver. That's a good. Well, that's a good name. We'll call him Deceiver. And you walk around and have the name Deceiver all your life, you know. But the name was fitting for Jacob, wasn't it? Jacob the Deceiver. Well, God gives him a new name. He calls him Israel. But as we continue to study uh, Genesis, we discovered that sometimes in Genesis, Jacob is called Jacob. And sometimes in Genesis, Jacob is called Israel, and we pointed attention to that, didn't we? And what is that all, what is that all about? There's an old Latin phrase. I wonder if anybody's familiar with uh, simul justus et peccator. Is anybody familiar with that? Okay, I gotta... No, Alex, no. Oh, good. <laughs> we get to show you a new one. 
I, I saw one, a couple of, I know some of you are really into that stuff. Simul used to set the cotter. Um, it's, you know, when, when I was in seminary, I had one professor who used to say, listen, we get paid extra for every Latin phrase we use, you know. And it was kind of a joke. But it's important to kind of keep those things known because uh, simul used to set the are really important phrase, and it's not that bad. I mean, simul, if you think of the word simultaneously, you can hear the word simul at the beginning of simultaneously. It means uh, at the same time, if you will. Uh, simul, eustus means just. Simul eustus, so at the same time, just. At, um, those of us who are married, have houses on our, our deeds, probably say something like uh, Harry Lang at Uxer, uh, or Rick Anderson at Uxer. At simply means and. Uxer means wife. So you have simul, same, uh, 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 at the same time, uh, eustus, just, at, and. And pecador means sinner. Interestingly enough, in Spanish, uh, a uh, sinner is a pecador. It really sounds very similar to pecador. It's probably derived from it. Um, sinners are pecadores. You know, so you can hear this pecador in there. So simul eustus et pecador. At the same time, just and sinner. Why is that such an important phrase? Well, it's an important phrase because it describes every person in this lifetime who is in Christ Jesus. Because if we're in Christ Jesus, the moment that we put our faith and our trust in Christ Jesus saving us, in that moment in time, we were justified. How were we justified? We were justified by an exchange, by a transaction, by the passing of records. Our record of sin, past, present, and future, was given to Christ. Now is my soul troubled because here comes all of these records. All of these records of all of these sins are given to Christ. And his perfect record was without any blemish whatsoever is now given to us. So that now, as I said in my pastoral prayer, a way has been opened for us to be able to come into the presence of God. We can come into the presence of God just because we are clothed in the record of Jesus Christ. We are clothed in the garment of his righteousness, if you will. But, but, repentance is a lifestyle for us, isn't it? Why is repentance a lifestyle for us? Because there's still a remnant of sin dwelling in our hearts, isn't it? That's what the fight's all about, isn't it? That's why sometimes we come in here on Sunday mornings all beat up, isn't it? That's sometimes why we're up in the mornings all beat up. Or For me, it's usually at nighttime. As you're thinking back of some of the things you've said, some of the things you've failed to do, some of the things that just went sideways on you. A lot of times for me, it's at night. So here it is. At the same time, we're just clothed in the righteousness of Christ. But we're also sinners, aren't we? We're redeemed sinners for sure. Simul used to set peccator was a Latin phrase in the time of the Reformation to describe that. And that is being developed. If you look at Isaiah 41, 8 and 9, you see, but you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I've chosen, it really opens that up. Israel, my servant. That's the new name. Jacob, whom I've chosen. Well, he chose a deceiver. Chose a sinner. See the mercy in that? 
looking around to see if they're getting it. Israel, who my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corner, saying to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and I cast you off. Now, if you look down to chapter 42, you're going to see that out of this, uh, this servant motif is going to develop a little bit further. And if you look at verse, if you look at verse one of chapter 42, behold my servant, say that word servant again, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Now, some of you might be saying, well, this sounds really familiar. This sounds like something I read in Matthew. Yeah, Matthew 12, I think it is. Where in that passage, these very words are being applied to Jesus, aren't they? So what's happening out of this Jacob-Israel contrast and what's happening out of this servant motif, if you will, is an individual is being developed out of this. An individual, one who will come. And who is that individual? That individual is Christ. He is the servant. And if we turn to Isaiah 49, which we read earlier in our service, if you turn to Isaiah 49, we're going to see this same servant uh, motif being developed again, focusing on the same individual. Chapter 49, verse 1, Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword, and in the shadow of his hand he hid me, and he made me a polished arrow. In his quiver he hid me away. What is all that poetry about? It's about the preaching and teaching of this servant. But look at verse 3. And he said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. And there, the Father is making a promise to glorify himself through the servant, namely through Christ. I show that to you because this idea of, of God um, glorifying himself in, in, in Christ is not some kind of afterthought. This, these words are spoken 700 years earlier, uh, before Jesus' earthly ministry even begins. Now, if you turn back to John 12 again with me, there the voice from heaven says, I have glorified it. I have glorified it. Well, that's the first point. He had promised uh, many centuries earlier to glorify his name through the servant. And before we go any further, I want to talk about the word glorified because a lot of times we use words in the church that we don't bother to uh, define. Uh, I picked up one of those words on Wednesday. I asked a rhetorical question on Wednesday at our Bible study, what is grace, knowing that in all probability I'd get a two-word answer, which is not wrong. I don't want anyone to think it's wrong. But I figured I would hear two words, unmerited favor. And what I wanted to show uh, on Wednesday was, okay, that's a good start, 
in defining grace, but there's much more to it than that. And I, I think glorifying and glorified might be another one of those words where maybe we don't stop and try to take in what exactly is that? Uh, what is it to be glorified? Uh, a definition, you know I'm very fond of going back to Noah Webster's uh, 1828 dictionary. and He, he has a, a definition, uh, and what's really interesting about going back to that dictionary, I mean, Imagine opening up one of today's dictionaries that are popular and reading something like this out of it. Uh, God is glorified. This is one of the entries in that dictionary, by the way. I've taken it word for word. God is glorified when such His excellency above all things is with due admiration acknowledged. Well, I see some of you got that. Um, let me read it again. God is glorified when such His Excellency, above all things, is with due admiration acknowledged. Now, what's, what's, what's Noah Webster saying? Well, he's saying this. He's saying God is glorified as He reveals His Excellency, and we come to see His Excellency. And as we begin to respond to that Excellency with the admiration that's due it, then God is glorified. Does that make sense? So um, God has promised to glorify himself in the Son. Now, God has also said, I have glorified it. Back to verse 28. Now, how has the Father glorified it already up to this point in Jesus' ministry? We could say in one sense God has glorified his name by works of creation. Uh, he created everything that there is. We could, we could say he has glorified himself by his work in the Exodus and uh, bringing Israel out of Egypt and across the Red Sea. We could say that he has glorified himself in the promise of a Messiah. Uh, we could say all those, but our context is calling us to be much more specific than that. Um, our context is calling us to see uh, here uh, really uh, how has the Father glorified himself, uh, namely in the work and ministry of Christ. And this uh, really, I think, helps us to start putting together all of these chapters that we've been studying. If you go back to chapter 5, if you will, we're going to go back to a couple of things we haven't looked at in quite some time. If you go back to chapter 5, verse 1, where Jesus heals the invalid, it's been a good while since we were back there. But in chapter 5, we're told of a feast. It's an unnamed feast. We don't know if the feast was Passover or Pentecost. We're not sure what the feast was. But after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roof colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. And one man was there who had been invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there for a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going another steps down before me, here he is before the pool, putting all of his faith and hope that someday he'll get in this pool to be healed. In verse 8, Jesus says to him, Get up, take your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed. And he walked. And we're also told that this was a Sabbath day. And if you look down to verse uh, 15, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. 
And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, notice what he says, my father is working until now, and I am working. We've made a lot of noise about verses 18. Uh, This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath in their estimation, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. But notice what he says in verse 19. So Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. Now what is Jesus saying? In essence, he's saying, you're ridiculing me for doing this work on a Sabbath day, but what I want you guys to recognize is that I'm in complete concert with the Father, so much so that everything you see me doing, it might might as well be just as if you're seeing the Father do it. And if everything that Jesus does displays the Father, then the excellency of the Father is in full view. And as Jesus is doing these things, the Father is being glorified, isn't he? Does that make sense? The Father is being glorified. Now, if you look at uh, John 7, and this, I'm going to give you an easy way to remember what I'm doing here. I'm gonna, we're going to go 5, 7, 9, and 11. Just think of odd numbers. Uh, so later, if you want to do this again, 5, 7, 9, 11, odd numbers. If you look at uh, John 7, if you look at verse 14, as, uh, the occasion is another feast. This is the Feast of Booze. Jesus goes up to the temple, begins teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking my own authority. And he continues. And what is the the point here? As Jesus is teaching, you know, in many occasions in the Gospels, we see people were amazed as they heard his teaching. And what does Jesus say about his teaching? He says this, if you've heard me teach, you're hearing the Father teach. Jesus is not the Father. Don't confuse the two. But Jesus teaches the glorious doctrines that the Father has given him to teach. So as they're glorifying in Jesus' teaching, they're at the same time glorifying in the Father's teaching. So we have this uh, powerful voice uh, commanding the invalid to get up and rise. We have the teaching in John chapter 7. If you go to John chapter 9, we're going to see this developed again. John chapter 9, verse 1. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Remember, we spent a whole morning on that question. Uh, Verse 3, Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed. No, we think of Noah's definite, Noah Webster's definition there, that the Father's excellencies might be displayed. Yeah. It was, that this, uh, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with mud, said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. And we spent a lot of time on that, developing the significance of that. In John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. And just so that won't be an empty declaration or an empty proclamation, he comes to a man who's never seen light before. 
And he opens up his eyes, not only to see physical light, but to see spiritual light. And the man begins to follow him. And through this, the Father is glorified. And the pinnacle of all Jesus' miracles, one we've looked at most recently, is in chapter 11. Now a certain man was ill, that's verse 1. Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters went to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. When Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death, for it's for what? It's the glory of God. So that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus delays, doesn't he? And Lazarus dies. And by the time we get to verse 38, Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days. In verse 38, Jesus is, uh, he comes to the tomb. It's a cave, a stone lay against it. And Jesus says, verse 39, take away the stone. And Martha's, Lazarus' sister, sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there'll be an odor, for he's been dead four days. And Jesus said, did I not tell you if you believed, you would see what? The glory of God. It's about to be manifest. So, verse 41, they took away the stone. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died come out, his heat, hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said, Unbind him and let him go. And here we see the Father being glorified. Here, the Father has promised to glorify himself through the ministry of Christ. The Father has already so far glorified himself many times through the ministry of Christ. We could add more things to this list, couldn't we? Uh, and thirdly, if we're back to John chapter 12, verse 28, he promises that he will glorify it. Again, Now, how is he going to glorify it again? Verses 31, 32, and 33 flesh that out. Jesus says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And verse 33 gives us great clarity. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to. To die. Of course, what Jesus is referring to here is his work on the cross, isn't he? He's referring to his cross work. Um, and um, why don't we just take a look at these uh, one by one? The first one in verse 31, he says, Now is the judgment of this world. That one can be a little bit confusing because someone might say, Wait a second, okay. Now is the judgment of this world. Didn't Jesus say somewhere that he didn't come to judge the world? He came to save the world. Yeah, he did say that, didn't he? I think it's in verse 47. If you look at verse 47, Jesus says, If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Okay, if he didn't come to judge the world, but to save the world, how is it that the judgment is now here? And again, there's three things that are important. You know, I tell my Hispanic friends, contexto, contexto, you contexto. Context, 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 right? Um, the context. Um, what is Jesus saying here? Now is the judgment. Now is the judgment come. Well, what he's saying is, while final judgment awaits, the final judgment at the end awaits, 
there's still of necessity a preliminary judgment taking place. It has to happen out of necessity. How is that? Because people are, people are receiving Jesus and they're rejecting Jesus. As the gospel is being proclaimed, some are coming to him and some are rejecting him. So separation is taking place, isn't it? Some will embrace the light. We're told that some believe, while we're told that others continue to reject. So you see there's a preliminary sorting out of souls right there, isn't there? Some who are coming, some who are rejecting. You know, many years ago when I used to go out to Columbiana County Jail and do ministry out there, you know, I used one of the things I used to say to folks is, listen, you're going to be different after this message. You're either going to be coming closer to the Lord or you're going to be going farther away from Him. But there's not going to be anybody that's going to be able to sit on some kind of neutral fence in between. We're either being drawn closer to Him or we're being pushed further away. There is no middle ground. A preliminary judgment is taking place as the gospel is proclaimed. So some are going to glorify the Father out of the new life given them in Christ. Others are going to reject now, is their rejection going to be a failure to glorify the Lord? No, actually, God will be glorified in the rejection as well because we're told that every knee will bow, aren't we? If you have a knee, if you own a knee, it's going to bow. Uh, it's, it's going to bow uh, either way. And in that case, you know, Romans 9.23 tells us that God's wrath reveals the riches of his glory. So that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a tough one. Well, I don't want to go down that rabbit trail right now um, because we've got just a little more to do here this morning. But um, either way, this embracing and this rejection, it's taking place in the here now, in the now. Um, and there's a preliminary judgment that takes place. Verse 31 offers us another way that the Father will be glorified. We're told that the ruler of this world would be cast out. Well, what's that all about? Well, the ruler of this world, he's referred to as Satan. He's referred to as the evil one. He's referred to as the devil. Uh, he is going to be cast out. We could say Genesis 3.15 is being fulfilled. The head of the serpent is being crushed, if you will. In Genesis 3.15, um, Jesus is going to accomplish a way of pardon, uh, enabling souls to escape his clutches. You know, when inmates are on death row in many countries, there's provision in the government to offer pardon to them. And sometimes they'll wait when their execution date draws near, they wait for a phone call. They could get a phone call to get a pardon, if you will, from their sentence. Well, Jesus is going to the cross in order to, uh, to accomplish pardon, uh, pardon for sin, so that we can be set free from uh, Satan's dominion. Um, Jesus will remove Satan's ability to accuse people. You know, that's if we think about Satan, one of the best ways we can describe him is the accuser because he's always accusing. And you see, unless we're in Christ Jesus, those accusations oftentimes are quite accurate. Uh, do you realize what you just did? Do you realize how bad you are? Do you realize all the, th those things are accurate much of the time? He'll twist them and, and maybe make them worse, but they're accurate. But once you come to faith in Christ Jesus... You know, the records have been exchanged. The record's gone. Uh, his ability to accuse us is, is, is uh, now null and void. Um, and Jesus will send the Holy Spirit. These are all ways that Satan is going to be defeated here at the cross. Verse 32 offers us a third one. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth. 
You know, there's several times we've encountered that phrase. We encounter that phrase. You don't need to turn there. I've turned you around enough this morning. But I'll just read John chapter 3, the first occurrence. We read these words, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And that's an old story that's back in Numbers, you know. Some of you are familiar with that story where Israel's walking through the desert and they're, um, uh, they're grumbling and complaining and the Lord sent venomous snakes. They begin to get bit with these snakes and they start to die and they cry out to the Lord. And the Lord tells Moses to make a, a bronze serpent, put it on a pole and hold it up. And then when the one who's bit by the snake... Uh, if he looks at the bronze serpent with the eye of faith, uh, the venom will no longer be poisonous to him and will be saved. And, of course, that becomes a type of Christ, doesn't it? So, uh, so that um, when we look up to the cross with the eye of faith, uh, we are also saved from the venom of sin that flows through our hearts, uh, aren't we? Um, so just as the Son of Man... Is, just as Moses lifted up the serpent, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And then in, uh, Jesus says it again in, in uh, John 8, verse 28. Um, he says, so Jesus, said, Jesus says to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and I do nothing on my own authority but speak just as the Father taught me. And there uh, we're starting to see John develop the fact that Jesus being lifted up on the cross is going to be something that will glorify the Father. He's going to be glorified by the Father because it's going to be proved, it's going to prove that he truly was sent by the Father by virtue of his uh, crucifixion. And something many of you will be interested to know, um, the word in, in uh, John 12 um, and verse, what is it, 32, the word lifted up there is the Greek word upsao, uh, and it means to lift up, it means to raise, and it means to exalt. Let's think about that for a minute. To lift up, to raise, and to exalt. And that same word is used in Acts 2.33. Don't turn there, just listen to the verse. Uh, where Acts 2.33, that's in Peter's sermon at Pentecost. And Peter says, being therefore exalted, he's speaking of Christ, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. It's this word, upsalom. So in Acts 5.31, again, God exalted. That's that word, Upsao, again. God exalted him in his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sin. I'm pointing this to your attention because this lifting up on the cross to this horrible, this horrible assignment is one and the same as an exaltation. As Jesus is being lifted up, he's also being glorified. Does that make sense? It's, it'd be hard for us to imagine that if the Word of God didn't tell us that, wouldn't it? Because to the watching world, it looks like he's being destroyed. Doesn't it? The devil thought he had him. Caiaphas thought he had him. Uh, his enemies thought he had him. What they turned around and did is they exalted him. They exalted him. Revealing the excellency of the Father and glorifying him in this act. Now, now, what's that got to do with the Greeks? That almost sounds like a joke, doesn't it? What's that got to do with the Greeks? 
Well, these Greeks show up. And Jesus says, my hour has now come. And then he gets, he gets word. These Greeks want to see you. What's the first thing that Jesus thinks about? I've got to go to the tomb. But before I get to the tomb, I've got to go to the cross. Oh, is my soul troubled. Oh, is my soul troubled. But what shall I say? Deliver me from this hour? No, it's for this purpose that I've come. Father, glorify your name. Father, a voice from heaven says, I have glorified it. And I'm going to glorify it again. You see how that's all being put together? Now I don't think verse 24 is so strange to us, is it? Because Jesus sees these Greeks. When he sees the Greeks, he sees the cross. When he sees the cross, he sees the collision. His horrible assignment is colliding with his love for the Father. But by way of application this morning, I want to point something out to us. There's something we need to do here. Glorifying the Father is so important to Jesus that he wouldn't hesitate to go to that cross and die that horrible death, suffering the anguish of God's wrath for our sin. Glorifying the Father is the most important thing there is to Jesus. We can be be really, really on about our own personal glory, can't we? In fact, we all are really on about our own personal glory. But you see, Jesus is showing us something here that um, if, if we were perfect, we wouldn't care about our personal glory. We would be on about the Father's glory. And I think that really, I mean, the, the application I want to make of this this morning is this. If glorifying the Father is that important to Jesus, that he wouldn't hesitate to go to the cross in order that the Father be glorified. And why does he want to glorify the Father? Glorifying the Father is an expression of love for the Father, is what it is. It's love for the Father. Uh, if glorifying the Father is that important to him, well, then it should be of utmost important to us. I'm going to bring Webster's definition back in. Webster says that the Father is glorified when such is excellency above all things is with due admiration acknowledged. I could put it in words maybe that are simpler if I said the Father is glorified when we fasten our our admiration to his excellency. When we fasten our admiration to his excellency. How do we do that? Chapter 5, 7, 9, 11. See if you can remember that. Chapter 5, 7, 9, 11. It's by drinking deeply from those miracles that Jesus performs. In chapter 5, what does Jesus do? He reveals the excellency of the Father by healing the invalid. And we see the power of his voice, the power of his voice, you know, uh, that voice that spoke and everything leapt into creation. Um, And then uh, you go to chapter 7, you see his teaching. In chapter 9, you see the giving the blind man eyes. Chapter 11, the raising of Lazarus. Let us fix our eyes and our minds on these things. Uh, if, we, if we spend time meditating on these things uh, and fasten our admiration to his excellency, you know what will happen? What will happen is we're going to care less about our own personal glory 
And we're going to begin to care more about the Father's glory. And what that will be indicative of is this. Our love for the Father will be increasing. If we want to do a little litmus test on ourselves, you know, many of you are in the medical field and you know all these tests that you can run. Uh, Here's a test you can run on your soul. How caught up are you in your own personal glory? That's a good litmus test as to where we are in terms of our love for the Father and our love for Christ. How wound up are we in our own personal glory? How how sharp do we feel insults? How, 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 How sharp of a pain is that to our pride? You know, it's really like a seesaw. The more sensitive we are to our own personal glory, the more we have ourselves up here. But if we're up here on the seesaw, then we've got the Father down here. But as we bring the Father up here, what happens to us? Uh, We fall down below. Those insults don't bother us quite as much. So it's a good uh, measure. How do we do do that? We've been given the tools here. Uh, We see what Jesus is on about. When Jesus, in verse 27, is wrestling with um, this horrible assignment, uh, what what leads him to undertake it? What leads him to go through it? It's his love for the Father. Heavenly Father, we do thank you and praise you, Father, for uh, your, uh, your, your wonderful word, Father, which has instructed us, Father. We see you have promised years ago centuries ago to glorify yourself through the Son. And you've made good on these promises, these works that you've given Jesus to do. They they were works that were from eternity, the healing of the invalid, the healing of the blind man, the teaching of these glorious things that we're basking in this morning, the raising of Lazarus. Oh, Father, uh, we thank you for these things, and there are many more things we could add to this, that they show your excellency, And may we bask ourselves in in your excellency this morning, Father. May we truly um, not leave this here this morning, but take this home. John 5, 7, 9, 11, take it home and begin to see how you have revealed your excellency in Christ Jesus. And may we bask in that. May we bask in that on our knees prayerfully before you. But, O Lord, you may increase us in our capacity, O Father, to see these things to uh, be um, moved by these things, Lord, that our love for you and our devotion for you may, may increase, oh Lord. And we pray these things for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.